Hello and welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm Matt Cantorino. Today on the podcast, we'll be joined by Emily Finley, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University and who is working on a book on what she calls the ideology of democratism. We'll be joined also by Arta Moeni, who is research director at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, and whose interests center around the intersection of political theory and international relations. So Emily, um, why don't you start by uh, telling us a little bit about your background, um, what you're working on now, uh, and what you have planned for the future. Sure. Um, So I received my PhD in political philosophy from Catholic University uh, a couple of years ago. And then I did a two-year postdoc at Stanford in the political science department, during which time I was working on uh, editing my dissertation and sending that out to a publisher. My dissertation um, and what's now the book manuscript, it traces what I identify as the ideology of democratism. And um, I identify democratism as a powerful ideological force in the West. Uh, And this dissertation argues that to the other great political isms must be added another of equal scope and internal coherence, democratism. So democratism in short makes heavy use of democratic rhetoric, but it's hardly compatible with uh, democracy in practice. It's it's really largely the pretense of democracy. Um, Its adherents champion the will of the people as supreme, but these democratists uh, rarely defer to the actual historical preferences of popular majorities. Uh, They tend to defer to those majorities only when those preferences coincide with their own beliefs about what is politically normative. Um, So democratism really relies heavily on elites and so-called experts to make decisions on behalf of the people, really regardless of uh, popular appeal. So where did democratism come from uh, historically and theoretically? Yeah. I trace its origins really to Rousseau as, if not the founding father of this particular understanding of democracy, then certainly a paradigmatic figure. Um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau does what really every subsequent democratist does in bifurcating the popular will into, into two. On the one hand, there is the actual historical preferences and wills of the people, what Rousseau calls the will of all. And this is fallible, subject to change, not always in line with the common good. And then on the other hand, Rousseau identifies what he calls the general will, which is this ideal popular will that may or may not be historically instantiated. Typically it's not. And he says that an all-knowing and supreme legislator figure needs to midwife it into existence from the people who uh, typically don't know really what's in their best interest. They haven't figured it out or 
they're prone to, you know, backward superstitious thinking. And so this bifurcation of the popular will has really influenced the modern Western understanding of democracy. And we see it in so many of the so-called major Democrats with a small d in, from the time of Rousseau through the 21st century. They understand, they claim to champion the popular will, but it's really the popular will as they believe that it ought to be. It's something like this ideal general will that may not be, um, it may not be an effect and it will need these experts and elites to coax this true democracy out of the people and into existence, often against the will of the people. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there to talk about. Um, and I want to dive into to some of these questions in a little bit more detail. But uh, let me bring in Arda Moeni, um, who, um, like Emily Finley, has, uh, has written a dissertation on political philosophy, um, but that also touches on foreign policy questions. Um, so Arda, I was wondering if, if you could just say a little bit about your own background, your own work and research interests, um, and possibly how they, how they tie in and connect to what Emily is talking about. Um, thank you for having me, Matt. Um, my background is, as you mentioned, in political theory, and uh, I did a dissertation uh, at Georgetown, and uh, once uh, I finished with that, I, I'm now working with the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, and uh, which is a foreign policy international affairs think tank. Uh, where we try to think about uh, how we can create a less militarized, uh, more uh, restraint-oriented uh, foreign policy across the Anglosphere world. Um, the dissertation, I think, that I did uh, ties a lot uh, with what Emily has been talking about. Um, I, my work is a, criti a critique of modernity, and I uh, use Nietzsche and McIntyre to look at um, the problems of, um, of modernity um, as specifically a crisis of meaning and as a, sort of a paradigm of, the, of our zeitgeist that to see what the issues undergirding modernity is and the kind of philosophy and ideology that uh, goes with modernity. And uh, essentially my, my premise is that, uh, uh, you know, they, there is, uh, an absolutist universalist uh, uh, paradigm that is advanced by modernity. And uh, that paradigm uh, ends up having consequences both, in, both internally and also in terms of our uh, foreign policy. Um, and so my uh, work uh, since my uh, dissertation has been to try to think about the, uh, uh, the link between uh, universalism and absolutism of having a claim to an abstract uh, absolute capital T truth and, uh, and coercion and war and so projects of empire and hegemony and uh, so I mean for a lot of people um, you know people like to talk about interdisciplinary studies but um, IR has been very much secluded from uh, more sort of 30,000 feet types of questions. And while on my day-to-day -to -day tasks today, I know I will work on uh, you know, what we should do strategically and policy-wise in, in, in policy towards China or Iran or Middle East or all of those sort of concrete questions, which I find very helpful. I do think that foreign policy is in many ways uh, a reflection of our 
uh, deeply held beliefs. And so we characterize the world um, and we call it realism, but uh, in many ways that, that the perception of reality itself is, uh, is sub subjugated to, to the paradigm uh, in which we are bred and are cultivated. And so I think uh, they're not two separate questions. There are two sides of the same question, the question of uh, hegemony, imperialism, foreign policy of activism, and the question of what is really the problem with our time. And I, and I, and I take it that we live, uh, modernity is, uh, pre presents itself as a utopia, as a progress in, on, just on the horizon. Uh, just waiting to get there, uh, a linear version of history that really uh, decenters history itself. And uh, my position is that really what it's promoting is uh, a dystopia, and it wants to globalize that dystopia. And so the problems that we see in the United States today um, are having tremendous impact uh, across the world. You see. Uh, in Europe, and now increasingly also in um, places that are not part of the proper sort of uh, West, quote unquote. So uh, that those are the kinds of things that I'm uh, working on. And I also, you know, part of this is to think about a new understanding of realism, um, you know, and using Nietzsche got me to thinking about what that would mean. And uh, Nietzsche advances a theory of what I call tragic realism, a, a new ontology, if you will. And that ontology really looks at uh, the reality of impermanence, the reality of uh, rise and fall, of decline, of change and becoming. Whereas our foreign policy and also our uh, you know, everyday life is prisoned by an ideology which sees itself, casts itself as neutral, calls itself for liberal as if it's a neutral entity, but it is not. But it, it is actually, a, you know, a real, a real philosophy of being, of permanence, of certainty. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, Emily mentioned Rousseau. Rousseau is certainly a, a culprit in the socio-political uh, formulation of this. But I'll also go back to. Uh, Kant and Descartes as the uh, founders of this sort of new uh, view of thinking about um, the, uh, the sort of liberal project uh, of autonomous reason or the rational will. And um, that sense of looking at an individual and his individual's will and unmediated by culture, unmediated by community, unmediated by a real concrete uh, uh, environments of breeding, if you will, and thinking of that and then connecting it um, to a, con you know, a sort of unmediated confusion, I would call it, with, uh, you know, abstract universal um, principles. And so that, that confusion and uh, misunity between the individual and the universal, unmediated by the culture and by community and by real concrete relations, I think, uh, has uh, ultimate consequences. And so it's within that, with that sort of uh, view that I'm trying to think about a new understanding of realism that's not just a modernist realist understanding, but also thinks about uh, tragedy and tragic um, becoming as essential to all aspects of life, including international system. And it will look to uh, formulate sort of a positive cultural form of realism. 
uh, think about uh, civilizations and cultural entities and the way that they are, uh, are perhaps a better unit of analysis when you're thinking about the international system. So what exactly is this? Um, I mean, you're talking about this kind of modern project that, that starts with, uh, for you, with, with Kant and Descartes, and for Emily emphasizes Rousseau. Um, how would each of you describe this project and, and how does it relate to foreign policy? I mean, this sounds like, and it is, political philosophy or, or even just philosophy. Um, I mean, what, what do these musings have to do with foreign policy? Isn't foreign policy about counting tanks uh, counting missiles, uh, keeping up with the current, you know, developments in the news. Uh, why are we talking about uh, Rousseau and Nietzsche in relation to foreign policy? Well, I think it's intimately connected. Arta mentioned um, that foreign policy, I don't know if you want to call them wonks, but they rarely uh, go upstream of these policies to what the real philosophical underpinnings of our way of thinking is. Um, and this progressive philosophy of history that Arta talks about, and that I mentioned throughout my dissertation, that that's a, a consequence of democratist thinking, the progressive philosophy of history, that democracy, this ideal utopia is just over the horizon. Um, this really relates intimately with our foreign policy in the 21st century and in the 20th century in that we believe that if we could just, uh, you know, fill in the blank, get rid of the dictator or change the regime or, um, you know, change certain structural relationships between countries uh, that we, we would clear all of these historical and, and cultural accumulations out of the way and from that would spring up this democracy. We had hoped that, or some of us had hoped that the Arab Spring would produce this new democracy in the Middle East or that the United States could expedite the process of democracy that was already on its way in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And through our military missions, we could we could allow what was historically inevitable to um, accelerate. And so these ideas, these, inter these military interventions are premised on, on the belief that democracy is really inevitable and a better world is, is just around the corner. We just need to, at the same time, allow nature to take its course, but also intervene in order to accelerate this historical process. Um, and so I think Rousseau is certainly a contributor to that idea with this concept of the general will, that there is this ideal popular will underneath the people's apparent historical will. So, you know, there were all these um, quotes from George W. Bush and people in his administration that the, the good people of Iraq want democracy and we just need to allow those voices to be heard our military is just kind of clearing away the, the bad guys who are stopping this general will from emerging in the Middle East. Yeah, um, Arda, I mean, would you, you would largely agree with that or? Yes, certainly I would, I would agree with that. I would also, uh, I mean, I would say that uh, the, the, the idea of universalism, the idea that there is an absolute truth not just for us, objective for us as members of the uh, Western American Anglo 
Anglophile civilization, but for everywhere around the world, and that other places need to emulate our, our model, or, or whether by choice or by force, that is an exceedingly dangerous position. Uh, it ends up in a sort of a millenarian quest. And so that sense of thinking that we have the right truths, uh, having that hubris, having that self-righteousness, which is really part of the modern construct of modernity. Um, and it informs our, uh, you know, Emily called them the foreign policy wants, um, the, you know, the blob itself, you know, it, it shapes the way that we think of our uh, being in the world. And this zeitgeist in which we live, the, the way that we conceive that we are so much better than all the other peoples that have lived before or will perhaps live after us if they are not part of, uh, you know, if you're not our, our descendants, our direct descendants. That uh, view uh, opens the door for uh, millenarian projects. And I do think that that is something that we need to be aware of as we make those sorts of uh, more uh, on the ground concrete uh, policy making about you know, what it is that we have to do, for example, in, in, in the case of China, right? I mean, the question is, we should think about our interest and we should uh, keep uh, understanding uh, reality as it is rather than how, uh, how we would like it to be. And in many places, uh, we don't do that because we are very understanding of threat, our understanding of risk is qualified and prisoned by, by you know, these over maximalist uh, goals, uh, which are utopianist and idealistic. And so I, I do think that there is a fundamental division in our in our day-to-day -day life and also in our foreign policy, it's sort of reflected uh, by extension in our foreign policy between, not between right and left, um, but between realists, dispositional realists and idealists. I think that there are two, these are two dispositions that uh, continue to guide our policymaking at home and abroad. And uh, to my sort of dismay, it's the idealists that over the past decades have won over the conversation, uh, particularly post-World War II. And they, they think about their, the world as theirs. And so that's why we have, and it's very anti-historical. We need to, I cannot you know, stress this point enough. Um, it is anti-historical and presential. It thinks that you know, history doesn't matter. It has gotten to where it needs to be at. It's a you know, famous Fukuyama phrase of the end of history. Well, that is a particular understanding uh, a particular ideological framework that le lets you to be there and believe that you have achieved the culmination of human achievement. And at the end of the day, there is basically no future dynamics that are fundamentally gonna alter our state of life. And that is preposterous and unrealistic. And so the, we need to change those kinds of paradigms. So let me, um, let me press both of you on two uh, separate issues, but ones which I think are related. Um, Arda, I mean, you're, you're talking about the, the sort of dangers of idealism and of an excessive kind of zeal for truth or for what we believe to be um, the right order of things. Would, is the problem, though, truth as such uh, or truth as a, as a concept that anyone believes in truth? I mean, wouldn't, couldn't a rejoinder be that, well, every great civilization has believed uh, in itself to a certain degree and, and believed that it was embodying um, the order of the universe uh, and representing truth? Um, so is the problem truth 
as such, or is it a kind of abstract um, and, and disembodied truth um, that doesn't take account of the historical manifestations? Um, I mean, absolutely, that's a distinction that I, uh, I hope that I did make. When I talk about capital T truth and absolutist truth, absolutist things uh, and, and universalist, if something that's supposed to be you know, universalist and true for all times, uh, by definition, it cannot be concrete. It, it, it is thinking of truth that is abstract. It is thinking of truth that is, um, that is sort of the uh, end of all things. It's a conversation ender, not, not a conversation starter. And so every civilization needs to have an objective set of values and truths or else everything falls apart falls apart. We need that sense of normative solidarity, if you will. And part of uh, the problems that we have maybe in our society today is uh, very much that we have lost that normative footing and normative solidarity, if you will. Uh, so it is important to have objective norms and values that people can relate to and use as frame of reference. But it is dangerous when those values which we believe our leaders who should know better will um, project them as uh, absolute values for all, not just for our own civilization, and then also go on quests to try to uh, recreate that kind of uh, world and life in other, uh, you know, different independent societies. That's the part that I call sort of uh, hegemonic uh, liberal project. And so, uh, you know, if we are talking about uh, just liberal, liberal and liberalism at home and then trying to see what we can or cannot do with it, that's fully acceptable. Uh, we have been living with that project for, you know, at, at least since the, uh, since our independence. But, um, you know, what the, the problem is that there are increasing uh, incoherences within the project itself that, that is showing itself at home. And at the same time, as we are sort of dabbling down on the project abroad, uh, you know, stretching, uh, overextending our resources and forgetting about limits. That's one of the fundamentals of, uh, you know, the more that you think about the abstracts and you think that you are righteous in those abstracts and you try to re remake the world in your image. Uh, and I'm using these sorts of theological uh, um, uh, phrasings on purpose. Uh, remaking the world in your image uh, completely, you know, puts yourself in the position of being the being God and godlike, and so it's what is what is one of the things that we, we can attribute to God's uh, at least definitely monotheistic God omnipotence and lack of limits, and so we have uh, put ourselves into the you know the position of gods, and we have completely forgot about limits and the question of limitations, and therefore that's I think restraint is a heated important uh, thing to bring up at this juncture. You know, the, the Greeks had this conception of Safar Sunni and moderation. And I think that is the essence of a realist uh, uh, move, if you will, a realist disposition. Emily, I, I want to press you on, on a kind of related question. I mean, you, you also have talked about democratism um, and liberalism as representing this kind of universal crusading ideology. Um, first of all, is democracy the same thing as liberalism? Um, there's been a lot of talk about, about liberalism uh, in a kind of political theory sense in the last five years or so. Um, is democratism, liberalism abroad, um, are these the same thing? Are they related um, or are they, are they rather different? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one because I think liberalism and, and now the buzzword is neoliberalism, 
have been identified as being potentially ideological forces in the West. Um, but to me, it, that's kind of a more amorphous term that can encompass quite a bit uh, more culturally and economically than what I deal with specifically um, with the concept of democratism. And so I identify democratism because of the way that it makes use specifically of democratic rhetoric. And so they're definitely related concepts, liberalism as an ideology and democratism. But I think I try to get more specific with democratism in identifying how it relates to our understanding specifically of democracy. Um, and I, I don't address really economic uh, factors, although those are related. I think my definition of democratism, it does tie in with maybe some of the things that somebody like Patrick Deneen had to say about liberalism um, in his book and, and others like that. But I really try to get specific in uh, pointing to its historical and ideological origins with Rousseau and this paradigm of the bifurcated popular will. Um, and so I think that is a, a little bit different than talking about liberalism more broadly. Yeah, I think, I mean, right, just in the emphasis on Rousseau as opposed to John Locke, for example. Um, but, but I also think that the emphasis on the foreign policy question is, uh, makes, your, makes your work somewhat distinctive um, and interesting. And I wanna, I guess, press further on, on this question of democracy and democratism. Um, someone might say, um, and either of you can feel free to, to kind of jump in here. You know, in our time, democracy doesn't seem like the problem. Um, you know, elite management kind of seems like the problem. In fact, we, we seem to suffer not from excess democracy, but almost a total lack of it. Um, you know, the EU is said to have a democratic deficit. Um, when people vote the wrong way, um, they're told that uh, they have to vote again uh, or that the vote is not valid. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering is, again, I think the, the distinction between democratism and democracy is kind of crucial. Um, but how do you conceive of democracy, I guess, in the, in the plainer sense, in the kind of Aristotelian sense of some popular element in a constitution um, and, you know, kind of just majority rule? Is there a place for that in a, in a balanced constitution and maybe even in foreign policy? Um, and then what, what is the kind of good elitism? Um, that's not a kind of Rousseauian, you know, legislator figure. Um, but what, what would be a good kind of democracy and what would be a good kind of elite? Yeah, good questions. Um, I mean, democracy and democratism are, in a certain sense, antithetical to one another. And in, in the classical era and at the time of the American framing, there was a healthy skepticism of democracy. And, you know, it had the connotation of mob rule. And, and it wasn't until Rousseau really popularized this new conception of democracy that it, it acquired a new connotation and, and a good name for itself for the first time in history in the late 18th century. And suddenly democracy was seen to be a good thing, um, and, but a certain kind of democracy, one that was carefully guided and orchestrated by the democratists who um, who wanted certain outcomes from the popular will. And so I think now the pendulum has almost swung where we don't have enough democracy or, or popular control as we're seeing 
with the, the rule or some might say tyranny of experts now. And so more democracy might be better at this particular juncture in history. Um, I mean, the reaction among many progressive elites to the election of Donald Trump and Brexit, for example, they reveal this democratist reflex of the modern age. And uh, I mean, Trump and Brexit enjoyed the support of a popular majority, but places like Freedom House sounded the alarm that democracies under siege, its president had said, paradoxically, you know, by these popular majorities. And so, I mean, it's nothing novel, as you mentioned, to believe that the popular will ought to be limited in some ways. Most of the American framers, with the notable exception of Jefferson, were very wary of the unmitigated popular will, and they wanted to place to put in place checks that would restrain dangerous popular passions of the moment. But democratism upholds this really a pretense that the popular will is forever supreme and it ought to be unlimited. But in practice, democratism often disdains the will of the majority unless that will coincides with the preferences of the democratist elites. So, I mean, democratism, it often blames poor popular decisions on things like a lack of education or the inability of the people to know what's in their own interest. We heard this frequently after the election of Donald Trump, you know, those who voted for him were often told that they were simply unaware of what they were doing, that they were going against their own interests. And this idea is one of the hallmarks of democratism. We find it in Rousseau's social contract. We find it in people like Thomas Jefferson, Woodrow Wilson, Jacques Maritain, that the people, you know, the good people, when they go astray, from what ought to be the, the public good. They're simply confused or ignorant. And so democratism places a heavy emphasis on the need for public education, which ought to be understood you know, to encompass only a very specific type of education, one that supports the existing belief system of the democratists. And this is very different from, um, as you say, this more aristocratic understanding of and having an element of the popular will or democracy within uh, a healthy political system where the popular will is, is sometimes deferred to, but it might be mitigated or restrained in certain ways. And um, I mean, our, Hamilton or Adams, they, they didn't hide the fact that they were wary of, of an unrestrained popular will that may go astray. And they wanted to institute constitutional checks against popular passions of the moment or majority factions, but the democratists, somebody like Thomas Jefferson, for example, of the founding era, championed the unmitigated popular will while at the same time wanting other institutional checks that were a little more, um, they were a little more hidden. Things like his schemes for education uh, or ways to check the popular will that didn't really convey that it was a check on the popular will. So there's something a little bit duplicitous about um, democratism. Yeah, I um, think, uh, just as an aside, I think my favorite um, kind of Jefferson um, anecdote on this point is that um, when he purchased the Louisiana Territory, uh, he immediately instituted a military dictatorship there, effectively. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> basically suppressed all the rights of the local uh, population um, and you know, basically even refused to kind of move towards statehood initially. 
um, even though this was all done in the name of expanding democracy uh, across. Right, the exactly. And in the name of humanitarianism, and he would he would try to lop off Indian lands through duplicitous techniques, getting them in debt. I mean, yeah, Jefferson was certainly a paradoxical figure. Yeah, yeah. So we could do a, we could do a whole uh, show on Jefferson if we wanted to, but maybe we will. Um, but Arda, I, I want to get you to jump in here. I mean, would you yeah. agree that there's this distinction between democratism and authentic democracy? Or do you think there's really no there there? I, I completely agree with Emily's overall thesis that, that uh, democratism is an ideology that tries to uh, protect the status quo and protect the system. Um, and I will also, you know, I would say that democracy uh, itself uh, has, uh, it, it's such a, um, sort of a lowest common denominator concept nowadays. You know, it's, it's repeated over and over again and nobody knows what it is. Having some elements of the regime or political system responding to the needs of the, popu of the populace, of having an element of popular will, as Emily put it, is certainly very important and healthy. Um, this is why uh, we have, uh, you know, been created uh, you know, as a republic. There is a distinction between republic and republicanism and democrat democracy and democ democratism, if you will. And I think that distinction is as important as the distinction between um, the way that you frame it between democracy and democratism. Um, republicanism understands that it needs to have, small r republicanism, understands that it, that it needs to have uh, an aristocratic element, uh, it needs to have statesmen. Uh, you know, we are doing a podcast for the uh, Center for Study of Statesmanship, that statesmen are important, that statesmen are not partisan, that statesmen are not experts, that uh, statesmen are generalists. I think the condition of life in modernity is such that the, that the realization of democracy, which has always been uh, from the time of Plato and Aristotle, a kind of utopian fantasy, has proved itself to be even more impossible. So that's why we end up with a kind of situation in, in the modern period, which I would uh, call corporatocracy with a veneer of democratism to justify itself. We have you know, legal and open uh, forms of uh, corruption, uh, basically. Uh, let, let's be transparent. When we are talking about uh, lobbyists, when we are talking about uh, decisions like Citizen United, when we are thinking about, you know, which has nothing to do with citizens, <laughs> they are corporate, you know, and, and the idea of corporations itself and the, the structure of our, of our uh, society, of our economy, with that uh, gives an illusion of hope for people to achieve those sort of progress. But really what we are seeing is that uh, it's, uh, the, the power is very much contained. I want to, you know, take this to, if you think about the ideological driver, and uh, definer, we can see two elements. One is, and, I, and we talked a lot about democracy, but we should talk about the normative impulse that justifies this kind of rhetoric. It is a category error, you're absolutely right, Matt. But it is so because, I mean, one of the elements is this radical egalitarianism, this leveling that, that doesn't understand that there are different things, that uh, different things need to have different uh, positions that because they need to have different uh, 
functions that they do. And, you know, if in, in terms of a human body, if you think about if every cell was exactly the same, yes, everything is a cell, but they have different functions and different positions and different quote unquote uh, privileges. We hate that word nowadays. Why? I mean, privileges is, is something that, you know, is given to you by law because of something. It's not, it's not just, you know, what, uh, I don't want to get into that sort of rabbit hole, but um, we think about, you know, if, if you think about cells of a body, they have different functions and we, they organize themselves differently for the function that they're doing. And so uh, if every cell was doing the exact same thing, uh, we would call it cancer. Um, and so we are organizing our society on a cancerous ideology. It's a, it's a tumor, um, it, it, a philosophical equivalent. Um, and what, what, why it's so dangerous is because it doesn't see distinctions. It doesn't see genuine difference. And so it's, it creates this behemoth, an abstract monstrosity that it, first of all, it's never gonna answer to, it is unelected, it doesn't answer to anything, it's this sort of cult of experts. But my point um, is that it actually wants, what it wants is total control. It wants more and more control and its goal is homogeneity. It is for this reason that we see, I mean, think about our sort of distinctions of right and left over the past 50 years, certainly since, you know, the 50s. We see, um, we call a group Democrats, another group Republican, we have this sort of dance that they are so different. If we think about what they stand for, there are two sides of the liberal project. One uh, focuses on this sort of progressive elements that, you know, um, which are, in my view, it actually what, it, what it's trying to do is to, you know, try to uh, activate and weaponize this sort of doctrine of original sin and human guilt and innocence and purity, these categories that are theological, and then use it to recast the world in terms of some sort of a, a utopian uh, ultimate final project. So, uh, and that's, you know, what we call the left, but historically that hasn't been the left. A historic left has always been about distributing more resources to the people. It's been, you know, if you go back to the history of Rome, you know, uh, Caesar was left, uh, you know, the, the, you know the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the plebarians, if you will. Um, and um, they, they take a much more economic position um, and they try to distribute uh, and be much more responsive to the needs of the people. And so when we think about that, those kinds of sort of historical distinctions of right and left, and we think about our, our time, where uh, we have one sort of left that, that uh, you know, the Democratic Party left, which uh, is all about sort of uh, using sort of the sociological level of control and almost the uh, creating everything into a sort of project that the culture needs to be one. Um, that, the, that the culture needs to be sort of a cultural hegemony, controlling uh, the kinds of, uh, you know, news that you hear. Uh, thought is a very, very much soft power control. And then you have the sort of right, uh, which is, which has cast itself as sort of individualist, legalist, sort of propositional elements that, that celebrates universalism uh, and calls itself exceptional. And, you know, on the other hand, you have the, the, the traditional customary right that tries to sort of defend structures, hierarchies, and um, the importance of those kinds of sociological orders, um, as well as the mediate, mediating institutions that are supposed to 
make our lives or allow for our human flourishing to actually take place. Um, family, marriage, community, culture at large, aesthetics and beauty, these kinds of stuff. So we have these sort of much, one side, which is very economic and another side or, or more sociological at best. And another side is more philosophical and more um, sort of uh, and less democratic, certainly. And if you look at neoliberalism, that is, a, you know, if the, the left likes more that term and neoconservatism, um, there are two sides of the Janus of modernity. And so there is the establishment. And I, so, you know, that establishment, what it wants to achieve is important. The impulse that it, uh, that it sort of uh, projects for radical egalitarianism is a facade. It is, uh, it is, and if it was true, if it could actually achieve it, it would be utterly dangerous. It would be an ultimate dystopia. Um, and you know, if we want to move away from this, we have to understand what, uh, the, the, what the sort of uh, battle lines are. There is establishment and there is anti-establishment. There is no right and left anymore. There is a conservative. Uh, uh, there, there's, no kind of, there's a realist position which wants to reground and recalibrate our experience within the, 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 the tragic nature of life, within the, what I called earlier, becoming change, dynam dynamic nature of life, historicity, and limits. And there is a utopian idealist version that wants to get rid of all controls and all limits uh, but ends up controlling, paradoxically, the, want the ultimate control and hegemonic state uh, filled with, you know, homogeneity. And I think um, this is why, I mean, Nietzsche is always uh, caricatured into some sort of a self-guru, uh, you know, a democratized for a self-help book for the common man, whereas Nietzsche is talking about very much about pathos of distance, about distinctions, about the problem of having, of generalizing resentments, uh, of, of, um, which will lead to these kinds of sort of tribal uh, identities. And uh, we see it perfectly today in terms of uh, politics of identity and politics of, uh, you, know, you know, political correctness and cancel culture. And we think about foreign policy decisions. How much change have we had within generations of presidents? Uh, very little. Uh, and we see, again, this overall overarching system where a group of experts who are unaccountable make decisions and there is no control over them, but then there is an illusion of democracy and democratism to justify it. You know, foreign policy is one of the clearest examples, uh, as you just said, of where there's actually deep agreement um, between the so-called two sides, um, between the, you know, the sort of center right and the center left in American politics. Let me, let me pivot to Emily and ask, um, I guess, as we kind of move toward a conclusion here, I mean, in terms of challenging this kind of democratist assumption, um, some people would say that uh, perhaps the solution is that we need to return to religion. What are the possible ambiguities uh, of, that, of that return to religion? And what, what are the possible even uh, dangers or temptations of presenting that as a complete solution? Are there Catholics, for example, um, who are democratists themselves, even though they seem to be critical of it? Yeah, good question. That's um, kind of what my next book project is going to be on, the, the Catholic Church and this idea of democratism. Um, well, in my dissertation, one of the chapters I write on 
is uh, on Jacques Maritain, who was the a, a very prominent Catholic philosopher um, and political philosopher of the 20th century. And many, I mean, given that Maritain is within the neo-scholastic Catholic tradition, um, many are tempted to look to his political thought as a species of conservatism, um, that's geared toward checking the moral and spiritual degeneracy of modernity that Maritain is very concerned about, especially in the wake of the totalitarian regimes. Um, but a careful reading of some of his work, especially his mature political work called Man and the State, should really give us pause. And it's, it's kind of a bellwether for what's to come in Catholic social thought. In Man and the State, Maritain, he lays out an entire plan for, for the rise of global democracy at the hands of an elite. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty scandalous for, for traditional Catholics. Um, and yet he's, he's accepted within mainstream Catholic thought as you know this traditional Thomist thinker and, and very few are critical of this strain of thought within Maritain's thinking and within the more rationalist, um, progressive side of Catholic thought. Pope Francis is a good example of that tendency now. Um, and I think the Catholic Church's reaction in general to COVID also um, lays bare the mainstream Catholic thought right now and its tendency toward um, this democratist, this democratist way of thinking, um, relying on rule by experts, uh, deferring to so-called public health experts, and just uh, generally assuming that the modern progressive state is well aligned with the Catholic Church when historically the Catholic Church took the opposite stance um, and very rarely thought that its uh, mission was well aligned with that of the secular state. That's certainly not the Augustinian tradition. And so somebody like Jacques Maritain represents this new modern line of thinking that is continuous with Rousseau, somebody who somebody whose works had been banned um, by the Bishop of Paris because of things like denial of original sin and, you know, very basic uh, conflicts with Catholic thinking. And yet now we see this merger of uh, Catholic thought and modern secular progressive thought along the lines of, you know, what many democratists believe that it, makes use of a certain lexicon. The democratists make use of the democratic lexicon and using these words like freedom and equality and the will of the people, these abstract concepts that have no meaning really um, in, in the abstract. And I think Catholics like Mahitan do the same thing. He talks about the leaven of the gospel working in history and working for um, the, the, fulfillment of democracy. And he uses a lot of traditional language about God and the church and the gospel. But when you really look at what his political philosophy is and what his plan is for the elites to coax this global democracy and to manage it, I mean, that's where the real substance is. And so you have to kind of get past these 
rhetorical flourishes and trappings and carefully scrutinize what these people are actually saying and what they're actually going after. You know, we've talked about, again, about the masses and the elites. Um, and I think, you know, in some sense, we've kind of come to the conclusion that, well, there's always going to be some kind of elite, um, but we would like it to be a, a statesman or a stateswoman uh, rather than a kind of managerial uh, figure. Um, but Artie, you've written about um, the current foreign policy elite in the United States, uh, what's popularly called the blob. Um, and one of the things you suggest there is a part of the solution is going to involve just generational change um, and generational replacement. Um, that we have elites who are who not only think a certain way, but who just are of a certain age, um, that they, they all came of age you know, during the Cold War uh, and they're still around. Uh, they're in their 70s and 80s uh, and they're still running the show. Um, so, you know, in terms of just demographics uh, and just age, what do you see as kind of a, a possible positive development over the next couple of decades? So I do think that uh, there is certainly much more to be said about uh, sort of the breeding and cultivation of our elites and how, what is the formative experience that they have had that frames their, their mindset and their analysis of, of threats and, and strategic posture. Um, uh, I do make the point that uh, the sort of the boomer class particularly um, being sort of bred and raised and cultivated within the paradigm of uh, the sort of US-Soviet uh, rivalry in the Cold War um, thinks about um, the world in terms of very, very clearly. And again, this is how it ties back to everything we've been talking about, uh, you know, with, with the US representing the good and that good being universal and obviously the Soviet Union being the evil. And if you think about it from the other side, the Soviet Union also thought of its project as universal and, you know, for, for human freedom and all that. So my point is it doesn't matter if it's Islamist, uh, if it's Soviet, if it's liberal, uh, the, ultimate problem is the what they all share in terms of ideology, which is a certain sense of uh, universality and absolutism and certainty in their beliefs. And uh, that and the fact and will that they have to globalize that sense of universalism and uh, recreate the world in that image. And so particularly for uh, that generation, our parents' generation, um, it has been uh, quite formative. And so uh, it, it, that's why ever since the uh, end of the Cold War, they have been kind of lost um, because they want to look at some something to do and some sort of cause celebre, uh, continue the good and evil fight. And, uh, you know, they look to uh, countries that are second rate, third rate uh, in terms of power, uh, you know, uh, Iran and then, you know, spending years in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but the consequence of that has been that uh, the next generation, whether they are, I mean, again, put the ideology, the sort of political ideologies, not the, I mean, ideology is really part of everything that we do nowadays, but the political ideologies aside or political partisanship, the um, new generation, the millennials were really uh, framed by thinking about uh, the reasoning uh, of our interference in other places and the, and the actual benefits and the actual results. And uh, the results have come in and they were not good. We haven't done uh, uh, almost anything other than um, destabilizing that region further, uh, going against our own objectives, 
Uh, we, we removed Saddam Hussein and gave free hand to Iran, for example. Uh, we, uh, you know, and, and, and that's why the, these sorts of like, uh, there is now an increasing sort of, if you look at neoconservative justification for why we should remain in Afghanistan, they will talk about, you know, causes that are very sort of, uh, you know, social justice causes in, in the West today, you know, like uh, talking about women's rights and uh, these kinds of issues. Uh, because they don't have much to show for um, the uh, strategically and concretely about the uh, about the uh, benefits of intervention, um, and so I do believe that this uh, position of idealism, the, the 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 dominance of idealism, that really came to the fore after World War II, um, it is very Wilsonian. Uh, Emily mentioned it, but but certainly after World War II, it created a consensus establishment around its precepts. Donald Trump came by and really showed that there are a lot of people, a lot of people that maybe Huxley would call savages, uh, you know, that are outside the system and they don't understand why the system is operating the way that it's operating. And it is up to the uh, more, uh, you know, I think intellectuals need to be honest, need to stop being sort of uh, uh, torchbearers of the system and try to recreate, you know, try to understand the real concerns of everyday ordinary people as to why it is that uh, the system is not answering for them. I mean, a lot of these sort of, like we talk about you know, globalism, globalization, uh, distinction and the problem for, for uh, American industrial base, but it, it, it's much bigger than that. It, it's, it's just the, uh, the, the uh, hubris, if you will, of some people thinking that they're better than the rest of uh, the population but uh, not uh, also not uh, justifying their existence, even in any sort of traditional um, uh, standards of aristocracy. They're doing it in terms of what Emily perfectly put, sort of uh, uh, ideology of democratism, which creates this sense of uh, inversion. We talked about, you know, uh, an inversion. We should talk about an inversion of power, an inversion of um, freedom, an inversion of uh, uh, of justice itself, you know, um, because true natural justice is for people to be able to really realize their potential and do what they need to be doing. And that is, uh, you know, you know, the, the principle of uh, entelechy, if you will. I mean, Woglin said that, you know, that, that if, you, if you're not, uh, the mark of totalitarianism is sort of not being allowed to ask questions, um, not being allowed to debate positions. Uh, and the reactions that we got over the past three, four years under the specter of Trump. Again, uh, this is not a sort of partisan point, but just using Trump uh, was, you know, Trump was used and abused by the media, by the uh, by those sort of controllers to, to get away with a lot more, not less. Um, everything that any other person would say that was contrary to their belief system was now Trumpist or Trumpian and therefore uh, able to be discarded. And I think that uh, that kind of attitude, that kind of um, real soft totalitarian attitude is more dangerous than, uh, than totalitarianism itself. Uh, because, you know, if you look at uh, many societies, uh, you know, that are much more authoritarian, whether it's North Korea or Iran or other societies, you see that the populations in those places know that there is a state and the state is, uh, you know, the state is going to have its interest and they can think in their own ways differently from the state, but then they have to uh, carry carry through with the sort of the orders of the state on a day-to-day -day basis. That's a hard totalitarianism, right? But if you think about uh, you being conditioned 
not to think for yourself and uh, not to ask those questions of the torchbearers and the experts of the system, that, that in itself is, is ultimately very dangerous. And I think the uh, nexus between the foreign policy establishment, the complex, uh, if you military, industrial, congressional, institutional complex of foreign policy, and the, and the sort of the uh, domestic uh, uh, environment, the domestic um, reinforcers the <laughs> of the correct behavior, you see a lot of, uh, of uh, synchronicity and similarity. And I think that that should give us. So thoughts. we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, I just want to thank you both, uh, Arda and Emily, for your thoughtful comments uh, and for the way that this discussion uh, connected kind of these big issues uh, in philosophy to uh, the practical uh, matters of foreign policy uh, and politics uh, in the United States and abroad, which I think is uh, exactly what uh, we, we ought to be doing. Uh, so thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Matt, and thanks, Arta. Uh, thank you, Th good to see you again, Emily, and thank you, Matt. We've been speaking with Arta Moeni of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy and with Emily Finley of Stanford University. This has been an episode of Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. Encounters is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and at our website, css.cua.edu. Thanks for listening. Until next time.